You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. There's more meaning to my life than just sort of getting through the day. Um, so it's like, whoa, um, how do I really take stock of tracking wonder? What are the practices that led me to research and interview and work with a variety of people across fields to answer this question? How do people, especially fulfilled innovators, ultimately thrive amidst adversity and challenge without burning out? That was Jeffrey Davis, return guest, dear friend, and author of the new book, Tracking Wonder. In his book, he points out that our culture's obsession with productivity has a bias against wonder, and yet, wonder is essential for our creativity, satisfaction, and belonging. Join in to see how we reconcile what seem to be our oppositional approaches in our body of work. Hint, the ultimate goal of productive flourishing is to help you thrive, not to merely be more productive. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Jeffrey, my man, thanks so much for joining me on the Productive Flourishing podcast again. Um, I'm always delighted by our conversations, and I'm coming into this one rather wonder-full, right, about what we're going to get into, and I appreciate um, your new book, Tracking Wonder. So thanks for joining me today. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. I always feel uplifted uh, by our conversations and just, just being with you. So thanks for having me. All righty. Um, well, I will encourage listeners to go back and listen to some of our previous conversations to catch up. But here we are in the middle of you sharing a new piece of your body of work with the world. And um, I have had the great privilege of seeing this one um, develop for quite a while now. Um, and so I, I kind of have that seat. But I want you to pull our listeners in and, you know, tell us really the journey from your previous book to this one and just sort of show that arc for us. Mm, okay. There is a clear arc there because it was actually while finishing up some research on a book um, that Penguin brought out called the journey from the center to the page. It explores the ways in which yoga practices and philosophies can uh, complement your writing process and creative process. Seems kind of an out there topic. I seem to take the out there uh, angles and, and topics. So I was in South India um, studying with my teacher, Sri TKV Deskachar. He's a great, he was just a great, humble human being. And I was asking him about creativity and yoga. And there wasn't a lot there in like, his awareness, but he sent me to a book called the Shiva Sutras, um, and I just want to back up. So, so why was I interested in creativity and, and this particular topic of wonder in the context of writing? Um, and why was I asking him about creativity and wonder? It was while researching that book that I was writing a chapter actually on surprise and delight, like how do writers keep fostering the sense of surprise and delight for themselves and for others. So he sent me to this 
little known book called the Shiva Sutras. I read it. I read some of the commentaries and then the seminal part of this book, um, it talks about wonder and, and wonder, it turns out to be like a seminal part of this whole long lasting philosophy that when you have this sense of joy filled amazement, it comes about when you recognize that this ordinary reality is it. Like this is the ultimate reality. You're not seeking some other sort of transcendent experience. And so that I, I had this sort of whole body. Yes. Like, Oh my gosh, this is what I've been pursuing probably since I was a toe headed boy wandering the woods. And so that became the focus for this next book. And I just want to say, because I think this will benefit some of your listeners as well. You can probably identify with this. I had one idea. Then I was, okay, I'm going to write the next book on wonder. And uh, (laughs) I even wrote like a really quick proposal on it. And I'm so glad that that proposal is nowhere to be found because it was so reductive. It was like everything I thought I knew about wonder. And I just want to pause there for a moment because when you're really in a state of wonder, everything you think you know gets kind of disrupted and unraveled. And so then, so then I thought, hmm, maybe I need to slow down. And I went on this sort of secure this journey, as I'm prone to do, with research, traveling to different places, remarkable um, rock art sites, and and so forth. And the the book scope was just getting unwieldy. It was like <laughs> Jeffrey's Encyclopedia of Wonder. And uh, so it became crystallized when I married my wife, Hillary. And I say that because she was a critical moment. She actually gave me the title, Tracking Wonder, during a walk in the woods. Um, we got married first stable relationship. We, we get our dream house, our farmhouse and the Hudson Valley feel like we've got the first stable foundation under our feet. We're like, great, let's build our dreams. Let's build our respective businesses. And maybe we'll have a couple of wonderlings wandering the, the woods someday. And, and we, so this dream house, you know, I had my sort of Walden woods and pond out in the back and she had our sunny place within the first year. Um, Hillary has two miscarriages. I have, I contract Lyme disease for the first of what would be many times. And within a matter of weeks of all of that, lightning literally strikes our house and sends a fire roaring through our dreams and particularly my study and studio. So um, I know that you can see on video uh, the the shelves behind me, all of that was black char and, and decimated. This becomes a critical moment for me really hunkering down in what tracking wonder is all about. And there were some really critical, maybe a couple of just remarkable moments when I did experience wonder under extreme adversity and crisis in what would be like the next 15 months of being out of our house during renovation that led me to some critical questions that started, started to crystallize what would become Tracking Wonder, the consultancy and community, and then what would become this book. And those questions were, personally, it was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to navigate this adversity and these sets of seeming crises? With You know, there's more meaning to my life than just sort of getting through the day. Um, so it was like, whoa, um, how do I really take stock of tracking wonder? What are the practices 
that led me to research and interview and work with a variety of people across fields um, to answer this question. How do people, especially fulfilled innovators, ultimately thrive amidst adversity and challenge without burning out? That question sent me on a whole other research and interview and sort of lived experience journey for the next several years. This has been a book now over 15 years in the making of research and lived experience. And so, so that sort of crystallized. I hope that kind of gives you and your listeners a sense of the arc from last book to this book. I'm glad you said that this was a 15 minute or a 15 year. Um, I'm going to start that one. I'm glad that you said that this was a 15 year journey because I think one of the things that happens and in act, it actually is alluded in your tagline, which we'll get into, or excuse me, your subtitle is that when we go on these journeys as thinkers and writers, um, there seems to be this intense pressure for it to be quick um, an intense pressure for it to be like, Oh, you've got an idea. You can produce that in the weekend and then get it up and blah, blah, blah. Like all those things that I know, on the um, book consultancy side, you've heard and and heard people, you know, thrash against. And it's just refreshing to be reminded, you know, that sometimes books take a while, like in the same way, start finishing, you know, I wanted to have start finishing or the book that became start finishing done like two or three years after starting my work at productive flourishing. And there it goes, you know, 11 years later, you you know, um, and so I think a lot of times um, trackers and authors just shortchange the amount of time it takes to go through that journey. I agree. And, and no fault of their own in many ways. Uh, and I, I would say this cuts across so many different fields and industries with people with whom I work. I'm thinking of a couple of startup, startup founders, very brilliant people who've had marvelous careers but then when it came for their startup, they had a very unrealistic calendar and timeline. And as much as I could tell them, they had to experience it for themselves. And so there are so many cultural messages, Charlie, as you know, about the overnight successes, the promises of write your book in 60 days and 30 days and so forth. And maybe that works for some people, but I think it's probably a more accurate narrative to recognize, you know, as I say, often in Tracking Wonders community, um, every big idea begets a series of challenges. And a book or a startup or any meaningful endeavor creating a new app is going to beget a series of challenges. So the questions that I live uh, every day with my community that you probably do too is, okay, if that's true, every big idea begets a series of challenges, how am I going to try to face and finesse those? Because they will be unexpected. I can't even know what those challenges are going to be, but at least I can normalize them instead of pathologize them. And then how can I go in this for the marathon instead of the sprint? And, you know, the meta note is that experiences of wonder are <laughs> what helps us leaders, managers, authors, uh, creatives. It just is uncanny uh, in many ways that I had this hypothesis and the science wasn't there 
really abundantly 15 years ago, but even more and more recently, it, it, it's corroborating it in the past six years. I even saw uh, recently two researchers uh, publish an article in Harvard Business Review about why leaders, managers, and workers need to protect their sense of wonder. I love it. And this this will date us both, and especially our lineages from, you know, philosophy, is that if we were to replay, you know, go back 15 years, maybe 20 years, positive psychology was still in its infancy, right, as its own sort of separate thing. And so what I've loved and sort of regretted in a way is that, like, I know had I started school 10 years later, that it's quite likely that I would have like focused on positive psychology as opposed to philosophy. Right. Because these questions that we've been grappling with, there wasn't the science behind it. Right. Um, But now there is. And so now it seems every day for some folks, you know, for us to be talking about wonder and belonging and happiness and thriving and things like that. But you got to remember y'all 20 years ago, this was not the conversation. Right. Um, And it wasn't accepted as a, way we can talk about work and a way we can talk about relationships, a way we can talk about life without automatically getting shunted over into um, pop psychology or maybe philosophy. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's a certain stigma attached to it that now positive psychology as a field has made us really um, have good languages and um, appreciations for that did not exist when we started this work. It's so true. I think that's probably why, eight, nine years ago when you and I met, it was like, okay, there's some simpatico here. <laughs> there's not a huge field that's reinforcing what we both knew at the time. Uh, but it's true. There was very little, little um, modern literature at the time when I started this pursuit. And so I was piecing bits and pieces. Dr. Keltner um, at UC Berkeley, Jonathan Haidt, now in New York, had done some initial studies on awe, but not a lot on wonder. And uh, so, yeah, the, um, what's, what's been really helpful with the field of psychology, uh, positive psychology, particularly is that um, these psychologists have given us a language to identify and even foster more of these experiences almost experimentally to kind of see, yeah. okay, if I do this intervention, what would be different in my life, in my health, my well-being, my creativity, and without bypassing all of the rest of our experience, right? So positive psychology is not positive thinking. It's not positive, it's not toxic positivity of just think good thoughts and everything's fine. Um, you know, so that might be kind of the message that I got sometimes growing up was like, It'll all turn out just fine, honey. Just keep a positive attitude. That's not tracking wonder, um, and that's not positive psychology. Yeah. Well, precisely. Well, I think it's done that. It's it's put a quote unquote respectable scientific lens on some of these conversations. But I think more important to me as the thinker and philosopher and sort of the catalyst out there in the world is um, certain questions are now on the table as legitimate questions that were not really on the table, right. In a way um, that, that we can have these galvanizing conversations around. It's so true. And um, I have to say this, 
the book and the early proposals, there wasn't the conversation around it. I felt like such an outlier. Um, and I was almost feeling like a defense attorney for wonder. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's very true. And you and I do share the lens of philosophy and then psychology as well. I know Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi said that he went into philosophy, but that wasn't giving him the tools Mm -hmm. to answer the sorts of questions about life and existence and purpose and meaning and not to be insensitive. I don't think it's insensitive. I think all of your listeners would agree that the past 18 months, um, not just with the pandemic, but everything else that has arisen in the past 18 months, culturally and socially, have put a whole lot of questions about meaning and relationships um, on on the table. And, you know, I was talking with uh, one of my clients who was, um, he's a founder, now a president of a company that he since, since has been acquired and he had up a team of 250 people and he was raising the questions back to me. He's like, how do we even measure productivity anymore? Like, what are the metrics? Like we never had good metrics anyway. So how do we measure it now? Hmm. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a potential arc for me because I'm, I'm going to do a slight rant and then we might, we might continue the rant and we might come back on, on track as it were. Um, that question, when I get asked that question, is always a stump moment for me. And I'm like, well, what really are you trying to do with that? What would the data show you, right? Um, because what we would see if you try to look on it as a you know, unit per hour sort of scenario, we know, because there's consistent research that shows that after about 35 hours, people are going to start declining in their effectiveness and productivity and decision-making and things like that. So there's diminishing returns after that, right? Um, So are we looking at sheer output over the course of a week? Are we looking at output per hour? Are we looking at the ratio of that? And why is it only output? Why is it not belonging? What is not wonder? Why couldn't you count the smiles that people have? Right. How many, how could you count? Why couldn't you count how many times teammates get coffee? Right. And I was like, well, that's not really being productive. I was like, no, 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 no. It is right. When you look at how much of our work is really based upon these rich, meaningful connections we have with people. And that is the baseline for performance. That's the baseline of effectiveness. That's the baseline of strategy execution. So many of those topics ask the wrong questions, right? Um, And so to go to the Einsteinian quote, I think it's Einstein, you'll correct me on this one. Um, Not everything that counts can be counted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. As opposed to um, something's only valuable if it can be measured. Uh, so, yeah, th- there's so much there. <laughs> you and I have so yeah. much simpatico in, t- in terms of the questions that we're, that we're living. So, you know, wonder is this heightened state of awareness and emotion that's brought about by something surprising that delights or disorients us or both. And one of the facets of wonder that I've distilled is bewilderment. And for the past 18 months, collectively, if we're paying attention We've been in a state of bewilderment. And it turns out that if you can navigate bewilderment, if you can sort of fertilize a state of confusion where you get really uncomfortable with these types of questions, it can be profoundly advantageous to you, to your company, to our species, right? So I, I, um, 
am right there with you in terms of, right, how do you measure productivity? As I've been really diving into the history of work, particularly in the United States and in some European countries, it seems like there's this unspoken set of virtues that don't show up in <laughs> mission statements yeah. or mm-hmm. these are our shared values, right? We are shared values of integrity and collaboration, creativity, and so forth. But that doesn't say efficiency, control, speed, right? So when you're talking about right units per hour, we're looking at efficiency, how efficient is this person being, right? Versus, um, I just saw Derek Thompson, who's a wonderful journalist at, at The Atlantic. He was writing recently about questioning the hard work ethic. What about the mm-hmm. soft work? The soft work. What yeah. about what about the the interactions at the water cooler. What about, right? How many smiles on the face? And these turn out to be ironically productive in the long Mm -hmm. term. If we're thinking about sustainable, quote, productivity, they turn out to be profoundly uplifting. If you're concerned about your talent, right? Talent retention, um, you have to look at these other things. And these experiences of wonder are in many ways kind of the I don't know, the invisible thread. I haven't come up with the right metaphor of, you know, productivity in terms of teams, collaboration. And I want to say for those of us who are working from home, whether by choice or uh, by necessity. So I also, though, want to admit that, and maybe you can identify too, that my being a, a, a team leader and being somebody who has worked hard for much of his life, who's actually um, unintentionally measured a lot of my self-worth according to my hard work ethic. I also have had to go through some deep questioning of my own assumptions, my own habits and practices. So I just wanted to kind of own up that too personally. Like I can't cast it outward. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, here's the funny thing. Um, not the funny thing. The reality is from a team leader's perspective, from the owner CEO's perspective, um, there are countables that are being counted down every minute, right? You can, this is how much it cost me. Right. Um, and that's a real thing. Right. Um, and sometimes that's even harder when it's your own small business because it's not someone else's money. <laughs> Right. It is actually food that would otherwise be on your table. Right. Um, And so there very much is that like, no, there's a real, real thing here. How does this compare with this other real, real thing? (laughs) Right. That I know is there. And how do we not end up in this apples to oranges scenarios? Um, And you're right. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of work for all of us to do. I was joking with one of my team members, but it's not really a joke. It's it's like, I think I spend like 15 to 20 percent of my management time per week running people out of the team, like being like, go home, do something different. Like get out, stop, right. Let it go. (laughs) Right. So, and I'm like, and I was talking to him this morning. I was like, you know, I'd much rather be in this position where I'm having to tell people to go home and stop. Right. Than to be like, will you do something like maybe, maybe like pick that ball up or something like that. Um, But the point is, is I'm looking at it from someone who has been deep in this work and teaches and coaches about this is like, look, I actually don't want you be here stuck to a screen all day. I've had the same conversation with a couple of team members too recently. It's like, look, we have to be in an integrity here. And, uh, 
And it's uncomfortable, I know, to really look at, and, and particularly if you're in customer service, right? You're wanting to respond to everything, you know, hyper, hyper quickly. I've been, you know, you and I share the same publisher, uh, Sounds True. And I've been really mm-hmm. heartened, um, you know, my by the way um, they've operated as a team during the past 18 months. And, mm-hmm. you know, one, uh, the associate publisher at Sounds True who, um, acquired the book, Jamie had like told me, you know, I am, I'm insisting this Friday, everybody get outdoors. And you're just going to send us photos of yourself being outdoors. Um, I'm heartened when I get a message from somebody on the publishing team who I get an auto responder that says, you know, for the next couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to be out of the office most of the time because I'm going to spend more time with my daughter before she goes off to school. Or someone who says, I get an autoresponder who says, I'm going to take this Friday off for a good mental health day, right? So all of those things yeah. are really encouraging to me, right? When when businesses and organizations and, and leaders are testing that out, like they're, they're just experimenting, seeing what's the more humane and enduring approach. Yeah, definitely props to Sounds True for their for their company culture. It's really great on, you know, for a lot of those very reasons. And you experience it. And I think you experience um, some of the downstream effects of that, especially in their creativity with the books and how they'll think about things that are just different than other publishers, right? Um, so thanks for calling that out because they're the truth on that. They really are. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is, and we're talking about personal work here, is I have a morning, um, you know this, Jeffrey, because we've talked to on it, uh, the most productive time of my day. I'm going to rephrase that. <laughs> An interestingly productive time of my day is when I go on my coffee walks in the morning. Um, so coffee shops like 20, 25 minutes away. Um, I was half joking that the walk takes me 25 minutes at the floor plus three times the, you know, up to 10 cats that I will visit on the way. Right. Um, and how long I'm talking to Steve or a friend or Jeffrey or Jonathan or whoever. And for the longest time, I was like, how do I count that time? Is that like work time? Is that like recovery time? Like what type of time is this? Um, and at a certain point I realized that's not a really useful question. Yeah, actually. Right. Um, not a useful question at all. It works for me. It goes into my day. It makes my days more joyful. Um, it makes my days more connected. Um, I do better thinking during that time. Is that more productive? Eh, probably. But why do I need to label time a certain way? What What's really under that? Right. Um, and what was under that question was the permission to do something because it felt good and you enjoyed it. And that was enough. Yes. Yes. I so appreciate that. And yeah, I like you, I know, I know the blocks of chronological time where my, I will say my frontal cortex is alive. The focused one within me is mm-hmm. coming, coming out to play. And, uh, and I know, I know those hours in the morning and, um, curiously enough this morning, 
I, I have a sort of list of first five that I know sort of optimally will be right for me in the morning. And one of those is a morning walk, but I haven't <laughs> been getting that in, uh, sort of forgetting about it by the time I get to number five. And this morning, though, I didn't. And, you know, I had a long color-coded list of things I wanted to pay attention to. But you know what? I just closed those and went out for a walk and uh, down this country road where we live in the Hudson Valley in New York. And I went down to this meadow like I've seen thousands of times. Like I go past it all the time. But for whatever reasons, this morning, quality of the air, the light, I look at this meadow, this row of goldenrod, and I just... I felt completely different from how I felt 10 minutes ago inside looking at a screen. I almost felt emotional for no reason. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is it. Like, this is important. This is probably going, going to be one of my most memorable moments for today, other than talking with my friend, Charlie, uh, that I will remember. Right. And so, yeah, those meaningful moments are, our treasures. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's really what tracking wonder is about. Yeah. I'm going to pause here real quick and say, I want to acknowledge that, you know, we're two authors who own our own businesses. And so we have a lot of autonomy in our time. Right. So I want to say that. And what I've been nudging people about throughout this COVID bewildered time is it's like, unless you're on a video meeting all day, there's probably ways in which you can disappear for a wonder moment or for a recovery block, right? Um, are people really going to miss those additional two emails you might send? Right. Um, and when you really understand that, you know, and I'll say it for me, but I've seen this in my clients and across my colleagues, all of the work that we do is actually undergirded by these things. Right. So sometimes people ask me how how I'm so prolific with what I do is like, you don't understand all the like vitality and and, and resiliency practices that it takes to do that. You don't see all the things that look like not working that makes the working happen. Right. Completely. Um, Completely. Yes. If people knew my morning rhythms and, you know, how long it takes me. But I know that that's what what works for me um, and how I've integrated you know, five minute cardios on the yoga mat and, and chin ups right there in the stream of things. That's, that's part of the practice. I, I would love to amplify a couple of complimentary things there about having your own business um, and versus not versus work, working at a workplace or, or working for somebody else from home. One is that we know this summer has been called like the summer of the great resignation and so forth. And there's this like real desire. Oh, if I just had my own time, right. There's this idea of like, Oh my gosh, my time's taken up. If I just had my own time, what I've seen over and over again, what you've likely seen too, I've helped really talented people transition or rather anticipate the transition. And where I start is you have to build skills of self-efficacy like you've never known before because now nobody is calling out your time. You Mm -hmm. are. And then it's just you and your own mind (laughs) that you have to talk with. So attention management, these are a set of skills, right? That, that people don't even know that they need. They might think that they need it at the workplace, but when they're on their own, they, they need it 
even more. The ability to moderate your own moods and emotions, you have to, you, you have to be fortified, right, with that skill set if you're on your own. Certainly, if you're at the workplace, you need to as well. But yeah, I just wanted to put that out there, that the skill set of self-efficacy, which usually is attention management, moderating your moods, and as you say, building your own resilience is essential. Those are the things, and flexible thinking, those are the things that really allow Charlie Gilkey to do what he does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know why I haven't written about this yet, but I've been talking about it for a decade. Um, there's this deinstitutionalization period that happens um, when you transition from a re- very structured, especially if you've been working corporate or you've been working under someone else's schedule. I um, mean, especially if you've been doing that, you know, you went to school, then you went to maybe another school, and then you got the corporate sort of standard job. When you get off that track, there's this very bewildering experience. I'm going to steal your word on this one. That's right? good. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, deinstitutionalization of like, oh, what happens when you don't have to be somewhere at eight o'clock and you don't have to end at five? What happens when there's not a meeting that makes you dress up and take showers? What happens when lunch becomes, there's just a whole sort of period of time. And that first period of time is like, great. I have my own time. I could do what I want. And it's awesome. I'm not going to lie. What I found is about two months into it, someone wakes up and they're like, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing right today or this month for the year. Like what, what do I do? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, What do I do? What do I do? And this is where Jeffrey, you probably heard me talk about it. Like I tell people to like, beware of the unicorn of like the, the full day. If I just had a full day to work on things, you realize how much we squander full days, right? Usually we're overworked before the few days. And so we're tired and we sleep most of the day, right? Or we get there and we're like, I have all the time in the world. Right? <laughs> um, and then it's a lot of frittering away. And I know we both have methodologies to help people have their own, you know, retreats and things like that. But we need, um, it turns out you get off that path you're going to need to recreate these structures for yourself. You're going to need to recreate these boundaries, these anchors, these rhythms, these habits that work for you. And it's okay if you don't have them now, because you've never had to have them. You've had to show up somewhere. Right. And it's just like you and me, Jeffrey, we don't have the habit of commuting. Right. It's a whole thing for us at this point. It's like, how does that even work? Like you do this every day. And I know it sounds odd for people who commute every day, but it's like our reality is the opposite of yours. We're like, you're like, you just like, there's things you do and it happens. And like for us, for me and Jeffrey, Jeffrey's not, and you can't see him. It's like, that's a whole, like, I need a to-do list. I need to figure out what I got a plan for this thing. Right. Um, just because we've been deinstitutionalized in that way, or we've been living life in this way is really what I want to say for so long that it, it's different. It is different. So yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to lean into that, that, were deinstitutionalized because I've been experiencing myself and I know so many people on the planet have been again past 18 months and before of going uh, of just having these moments again they are of wonder and they are of bewilderment specifically of like oh that's the water I've been swimming in for all of my life oh that's the reality I've assumed was true um, and so what you're talking about is 
Like it shows up again, if somebody's had a nine to five job or a nine to eight job as sometimes the case is, um, and suddenly you don't have that, or suddenly you have that job, but you're at home instead of at the <laughs> office. That's a profoundly disorienting. And it really, those are moments of wonder. <laughs> and this is why I say wonder is not kid stuff. It's radical grown up stuff. Uh, I think many children I have too, uh, are often bewildered because the world is bewildering. Um, so I did, uh, yeah, I'm really going to chew on that de-institutional de-institutional is, is that what you said? De-institutional. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll find a different word, but, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, I noticed, um, just as a, as a bookmark, uh, I haven't, finished Richard Powers novel, the overstory is like, I couldn't get through it all, but I know it's profound for many people. His latest book, he's taking a look at all of humanity. It's called bewilderment. I just saw that today. It's kind of like, this is the state of our species right now. We are in a, a state of bewilderment. And so the, you know, the question for us, whether we're at the workplace, whether we're trying to write our own books is like, how do we, how do we navigate these moments of bewilderment when our reality, our sense of who we are gets turned upside down. And I'd, I'll pose the question to you. How, how do you navigate? Because I know you've had your own disorientation. I know you've had like your own series of tick bites and house fires and, you know, uh, uh, right. So how do you navigate that? Uh, I'm just going to turn the reverse the roles here. Yeah. Well, I question a lot of assumptions, right? And stay in that place of, of wonder and uncertainty. Like if there's something going on, it's like, why do I feel that way about that thing? Right. Why am I so attached to this one way that things have to be? Right. Um, and that unlocks a lot for me because I think, you know, we, you know, I was talking to, to Jonathan or talking with Jonathan about this yesterday, Jonathan Fields, um, who also has a book coming out. Um, and, the thing about it is, is any deep insight is going to create spiritual tension, right? On the one hand, what I would say is wonder is great. And at the same time, there's a part of us as humans that don't want to wonder. We want things to be stable and consistent and routine and easy, right? And so um, I've been talking about um, our state as negotiation fatigue. Meaning our state right now with COVID, because like, do I hug Jeffrey? Do I talk to Jeffrey? Like, what's this? Like, what are we negotiating in this moment that we used to not have to? Can we go to a restaurant? Can we not go to a restaurant? Is that restaurant going to be open? Are they going to have the normal things? So there's all of this that we have to do. So I'm going to co-opt your language and say that I think there's like a bewilderment fatigue. Exactly. It's so hard right now. Can I just go back to things being easy and normal? But the tension point here is we get bored, right? When things become too complacent, we start languishing. We start just, eh. and so there's always finding this right balance of wonder and consistency and things like that. So the other thing that I come back to Jeffrey is like, is wonder in this moment serving me or is it a distraction from something else? Right. Is it easier to wonder right now than to do the hard work that's in front of me to have that hard conversation? Right. I can have wonder in that conversation, but sometimes it's, you know, we can use all of the spiritually good things as ways of bypassing or disengaging what's really right in front of us. 
and escaping reality. I love that. I love that invitation to to lean into that a little bit more because it's definitely a question I have lived for a long time and pursuing this research and, and lived experiences. That wonder actually has this remarkable experience of dissolving our biased ways of, of seeing so that we can see one another, ourselves, our reality in a much more true and yet beautiful way. And not everybody wants to see that. And it is disorienting. And you're absolutely right. I did write about this six months ago that we're, we're experiencing, I didn't call it bewilderment fatigue, but it was novelty fatigue. It's like too much is new. Like, too, like I can't take anything for granted anymore. And uh, so it can be fatiguing. And so if it's okay, I'm actually going to drill down a bit more specifically into the facets of wonder, mm-hmm. because I think that will be illuminating to your listeners that um, experiences of wonder just not there. They come in a variety of contexts. And so in my, in my work, I did distill that wonder has six facets. If you think of wonder as being this multifaceted gem, just as each of us is multifaceted. Um, and I know many of the facets of Charlie, fortunately, and he knows many of the facets of me. Wonder also has many facets. And so I'm just going to go through those really quickly and talk about why they're useful in certain contexts. Um, uh, one is openness. And openness is what I call the wide sky facet. And it is something that many of us want to foster, actually need to foster when we're starting to uh, embrace a new idea or launch some new initiative. We have like we want to foster a certain quality of intelligent naivete and not know what's ahead. Uh, coupled with the second facet of wonder, which is curiosity. Um, and curiosity is the rebel facet. It's what sends off good dopamine um, that will keep us going. And, and really a number of studies show that if we follow our curiosities instead of our passions, we're much more likely to feel fulfilled. I will say with a caveat, though, um, new studies are coming out about why so many of us, uh, why the rates of depression and anxiety are increasing. And a lot of it is showing, of course, being in front of our devices sends off massive amounts of dopamine. And so there's curiosity fatigue, right? <laughs> For those of us, I don't have a attention deficit disorder. I have what one of my clients calls attention abundance disorder. Like I can pay attention to too much. But openness and curiosity can be useful if you're not feeling as if you're able to handle challenges uh, and finesse them in flexible ways, right? So you kind of moderate. You're trying to up the wonder ratio. You're not trying to live in wonder all day long. The, the next pair are bewilderment and hope. And so many of us, I, and I really leaned into the science of hope for this project in ways that I never did before. And honestly, never gave much language to hope. And I completely misunderstood it. I thought of it as wishful thinking, and it's not. So fostering moments of wonder in times of bewilderment and hope turn out to be profoundly helpful to help us stay emotionally buoyant and having grit without gritting our teeth Mm -hmm. uh, and still able to acknowledge all of the other suffering and, and other things that may be happening. And finally, what I have to say, what often gets me most emotional are, are the last pair of facets, and that's connection and admiration. Mm-hmm. Connections like what I call the flock facet because it speaks to that yearning we all have, introverts or not, to 
to feel connected and aligned and syncing up with other people, which is what I feel with you right now, even in conversation mm-hmm. and admiration, which I feel for you. I feel for our friend, Jonathan, uh, mm-hmm. and others. And that's what I call the mirror facet admiration, because it's where quite often just observing somebody, even at work, um, and watching their character or their craft can really, it feels like a surprising love for someone's excellence that uplifts the best in us. So those are, so maybe that gives us like a little nuance to what we're talking about with wonder. So I so appreciate what you said, like, you know, are we just like exploring wonder because we don't want to face the rest of reality? Um, So, so thanks for that invitation. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, it's very helpful. And it, you know, sort of dovetails on, you know, I alluded to it or foreshadowed earlier. Um, you know, the the title, the current subtitle of your book is Reclaiming a Life of Meaning and Possibility in a World Obsessed with Productivity. Mm. Um, and you know this about me. Most listeners know this about me, right? Is that I have a lot of tension actually with productivity itself, the word, how we use it, what it means, you know, and there's a little rant there. And so it would seem, well, one of the reasons why productivity is not in the subtitle of start finishing, right? And it's not really, it is, but it's not, right? Um, And I think, you know, what we have to balance on the one hand is there's a certain amount of wonder that comes after work is done mm-hmm. where we don't get to experience the richness of the open metal uh, after the confusion of the work. Right. Um, but we have such a culture that pushes work as the virtue, right. Especially that hard work as the virtue that it seems like we would come like you and I would come together. Like you're talking about wonder. There's this thing that's different to work. I'm like, no, they're actually very supportive and complimentary. Right. Um, if your work is not wonderful, um, you have a very limited timeline of doing that work. Um, at the same time, if you're not doing the work after wonder, you're not getting the best benefits, as it were. The most rich experience is what I want to say from wonder. So both go together super well. Completely. It's it's so true. And I know you and I have joked about, like, we should do some sort of joint venture, like, productive wonder or something like, you know, yeah. you're trying to, because there is such overlap and such simpatico um, sort of soul, soul to soul um, between our bodies of work. And um, so, yeah, you know, I just want, I want to speak to something too that might be useful for listeners as well, because you were talking about, yeah, there can be moments of wonder after the work is done. And as you and I know, um, I don't always take time to celebrate Right. The work being, hard, being well done. And nor do a lot of people, whether at the workplace or not. We have certain wonder interventions to help people pause and actually reflect. And reflection turns out to be really, really important mm-hmm. for reclaiming a life of meaning. And so even having teams pause toward the end of the day or even at the beginning of a meeting and say, what was what were three highlights from today? And they might've been very small moments. They might've been some of that soft work we were talking about. It might've been what somebody just happened to say to me. Um, those are really important to track and acknowledge. And, um, and they, they are very complimentary then, as you say, to feeling like you have a productive life and a fulfilled life. I would not fee- feel fulfilled without good work in the world. 
But I also have to remind myself and other people in our community, I am not my work. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly with some of the research I've been pulling, because I I have emphasized with my clients and, and with companies as do you, you know, people do want a sense of purpose at their work. But what's happened is people have relied on their work for their life's purpose. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I've been um, suspect to do that as well. But this is this is the challenge, right? It's like, yes, work is meaningful. It helps us. It helps us feel fulfilled. But we are more than our work. We're absolutely more than our work. And, th- and that's where sometimes, you know, to have – I'll steal your language because we do that so much around here anyways um, – you know, to have a wonder invention is what, what happens when we change what we do from the noun version to the verb version, instead of saying, I'm a writer, I write. It sounds very subtle, but we don't necessarily have so much, I so much existential attachment to the verb as we do the noun. And so some people are like, well, I'm not a writer. I'm not a painter. I'm not like, okay, let's not worry about that. Do you paint or not? Do you code or not? Do you lead or not? Right? And then when we focus on that, I think it does several things. It gets us more wonderful, I think, about some things that we actually need to be doing and focusing on. Um, but it also makes us less rigid to use yours. It makes us more open, right? It makes us more open to the different ways we might be doing that that don't fit a standard mold that don't do all those sort of things. And so it's a, it's a really powerful way to get unstuck. So it's like, you know, a good leader does this. I'm like, let's, let's let go of the noun, right? Let's let go of the good leader. What in this moment would feel like good, you know, good leading. Mm. I know that doesn't sound, that's not, that's not a well-formed sentence, but you get what I'm saying. What would it, what would it feel like to lead well right now, as opposed to be a good leader? Yeah. And I love that. Just enough. To be like, oh, well, here's what it would mean. So I'm like, how about you go do that? Right? You knew the whole time. You just got stuck. I love that. What would it feel like to lead well? You know, um, I'll be working with a group of uh, a remote team in this agency. And uh, I've been thinking about their world. We're all sort of saddled with um, digital distraction, at least many of us. And if you're a UX designer, right? If your world is about digital technology, you're just that much more prone to it. And so I was reflecting again on my walk this morning, actually, um, what Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi said, for those who don't know, that's the Hungarian psychologist who's, I couldn't spell his name, but I can pronounce it, uh, who, who did give us the, the science of flow and of creativity. And he says, you are what you pay attention to. So in this context, right, of the verb, it's like, what are you paying attention to? If you're paying attention to a screen for eight hours a day, does that actually make you a better, does that help you design better? So I'm going to use your refer, not make you a better designer. Does that help you design better versus spending an hour observing the patterns of a tree and, and letting your imagination kind of run wild there a little bit. Right. So yeah, I, I really appreciate your emphasis on the verb because then we see what do we stand for? What, where have my actions been and really where's my attention been? And have I allowed my eyes even to rest and gaze a little bit? Um, yeah. Yeah. To inform yeah. my actions. Yeah. It also sneakily brings us to the present and future, mm. right? When we focus on the noun, we're focused a lot on what we've done in the past. 
and sort of all those bricks we've stacked to be that thing, right? So I'm a good leader means I've stacked all those bricks, I've done all the things, so on and so forth. Well, okay. But what does it mean now and tomorrow? <laughs> and we can start having those practical. So this is about changing your schedule is what we're talking about. Okay. We're not talking about changing your history, changing who you are as a person. We're not talking about all of that stuff. We're just talking about changing your schedule. Can we do that? Yeah. Let's have that conversation. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it just opens up that space, right? It really for, does. For to happen. It really does. Exactly. And can we, yeah. Can we just shift? That it's okay, that it's not only permissible, it's actually necessary for you to take certain kinds of breaks during the workday. I think it's Sweden that has a common sort of cultural ethos to take a cake break at the same time every day. So we take breaks together, like maybe we used to, right? So those sorts of things that, yeah, we could shift your schedule and, uh, and give you permission to do things that actually fulfill you, that actually surprise you in delightful ways. Yeah. This is where I miss being a military leader sometimes because all your breaks are together. It's like, all right, 15, let's go. Right. And everybody, you know, you might lean against the wall. You'll take your Kevlars out. You pull out your MREs and start complaining about it because it's just one of the things you'll start trading and doing all the things that happen for that 15 minutes of time, but it's all together. Right. And so no matter what's happened, you, it gives, they wouldn't say it this way, but what it actually does is it gives the entire unit, a coherent shared experience of bonding and wonder in frat fraternization in the good ways before you go into that next leg. Right. Before you go into the next leg. That's such a great metaphor. Right. And the coherence is, is really important for a meaningful life and coherence with yourself and your own life, but also with other people. Right. 40% or more of surveyed Americans say that they report ongoing loneliness and isolation. Yeah. We have to really, so this is maybe you know, closing note here is like, we're both kind of really focused on time and attention and so forth. Um, but can we shape our time together better? That's a question I'm also lifting. Can we shape our time together better? Yeah. And that's that connection facet of wonder, which I'm so glad that you pulled that up. Cause you know, around here, we talk a lot about success packs and doing it together and working better together you know, who, not how. So if you've been listening, you know what I'm talking about here, right? And a place that opens and changes so many things is what happens when you take this solitary aspiration or goal or value and you do it in a co- in a way that's coherent. And normally we say incoherent, we mean like it's used improperly. It's mean, means to move it stupid, but we, and we're, you know, we're being philosophers and we're, we're sticking to the word it means it fishes, it fits together. It meshes mm-hmm. together is what we're talking about. What happens when the things you care about, your goals, your community coheres in a way, what happened? There's just, there's, you know, I hate to use the corporate word synergy, but there's this synergy that happens. It only happens when you do that. Um, and that's where our best work comes from. It is. And, and then you really do recognize that your work is greater than you. Yeah. You use success packs and there's another place of overlap where we, we use nourish packs, support packs and wild packs. And we need support packs. We need people who have better talent in certain areas than, than we do to advance an endeavor. We need the nourish packs. We need some confidants in this world. We need somebody to like share our wounds with, and we need the wild packs. We need the other people Mm-hmm. in our lives who like, you know, that you and I, we get uh, the challenges 
of taking on complex endeavors or, or leading a team and so forth. Yeah. Okay. So I have two questions. One's, one that may be a quicker one, and then we'll sort of wrap up on this one. So I'm reading the book and I get to page 58. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a galley. And I'm like, Jeffrey, you mother, you. All right. So if you get the book and you get to page 58, it might be different in your published version. But in Galley, it's paid. Jeffrey knows what he's talking about. The formatting flips, y'all. Flips completely. And I'm like, how about, Jeffrey, you use the design of your book to invoke wonder and bewilderment and a massive what the fuck is happening right now? But the thing about it was, is I was reading it and I was like, did he explain why the hell he did that? Because nope. I know why he did it. Oh, um, And then it just gets back to normal. And so the, for the rest of the book, I'm like, does this flip again? Nope. That one spot. I, I love, love you and hate you. Yeah, I love job. that you brought that up. I love that you brought that up. And so this actually ties directly to connection and being in a collaborative flock. Because actually, you know, this is about the chapter, for those of you who don't have the book yet, uh, on Your Young Genius, which is just such a seminal piece of, um, of the work and, and of our work at Tracking Wonder. And I was actually talking about this with my editor and with, with Jamie. It sounds true. Like, what do you do with this? You know, the young genius, like it has to be like around here, but... What are we going to do with it? And I have to give credit to Jamie, who just like spontaneously said during one conversation, I don't know. I think it should be some kind of unchapter. Like we shouldn't even number it. And so we let that sit for a while. And now I have to give credit to the Sounds True designers. Yep. And Jamie's like, you have to immerse yourself in this book, really get it and propose some interior design ideas. Because my bar was pretty high that they gave me. They're like, you're writing a book about wonder. You need, you need to elicit some wonder of the readers. It's like, I know that's a high bar. <laughs> yeah. But then the designers did it and they showed me some of the design ideas. And I was just like, and they didn't tell me. I love that we have a sideways unchapter. You're a young genius. Thanks for calling yeah. that out. Yeah, I'm glad that you hate it and love it. And it was bewildering. I, and I don't even explain it. And so I said, that's when I said, I want these intermission pages to be really bold and say like, wait, I have a question. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I will follow up with the sounds true team. Um, I, what I can say there and I realize we, we come from a same book family in that sort of scenario is it was the same experience working with them on start finishing and that start finishing has those like it, the design of the book matches the message of the book. And I will say, um, having been around a lot of books, we authors don't get a lot of that attention to that, that full care. Sounds true makes great books. They just do. So sounds true team. If you're listening, thank you for it. everyone else. I will say this. And again, I know that I'm biased on this one. Um, but I think, um, too many people sleep on sounds true's books, right. And just really the care they take in making your great product. Um, did it with start finishing. I know I'm biased there. But tracking wonder, I saw that, and like why I was frustrated and mad was because of how freaking brilliant it was. I was like, that, that is just a stroke of genius, right? Genius, uh, yeah. um, so, um, good choice on that one, and good collaboration on that one. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for calling that out. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I was. I, I had a, a few good minutes of appreciation and wonder and bewilderment just just with that change. Um, so, as the guest to today's episode, and I'm I'm looking at the time, and obviously, Jeffrey, we can talk for quite a while. We t- we tend to. Um, thanks everybody for listening with us as we jam. Um, as the guest to today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with either an invitation. Mm or a challenge depending upon what most resonates with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So based upon what we've talked about today, what would you most like to invite or challenge our listeners to do? Yeah. Uh, to conduct an experiment with the beginning, middle and end of your day. So ask yourself and like give yourself the challenge and the invitation for 14 days. Okay. Here's how I typically approach my morning. What one thing could I do to trip that default tendency in my morning rhythm, my morning pattern that would bring me more a sense of openness, delightful surprise, sense of elevation or connection? Second, similarly, what could I do in the middle of the day? Could I take a five minute wonder walk, right? Could I take five minutes away from the screen and just pause, gaze and praise upon something for 10 breaths, right? And then third, what could I do toward the end of the day as we were talking about earlier? Could I just pause and write down three highlights, three maybe even sensory small moments, the way sunlight just cast across the crowded traffic jam I was in and uh, surprised me or something somebody said or that I, you know, actually got through something and, and completed it. That's the experiment. That's the challenge. Beginning, middle, end of the day, disrupt your default pattern. Jeffrey, I stepped outside today. It's a wonderful day in Portland. And there's a tree that's got some birds and then they were just singing the morning glory. And I started smiling immediately. And I said, you know what? Today's going to be a great day. I know it. Just wonder how. Right. Um, So thanks for being another one of those moments of the day that has made it wonder dash full. Yeah, I just got the goosebumps, which is actually a sign of wonder. So thanks, Charlie. <laughs> All right, listener. So you heard it from Jeffrey. What could you do over the next week and do it for 14 days to have micro wonder interventions at the beginning, middle, and end of your day? How might your days and your work shift if you spent a little bit more time tracking wonder? Until next time. Stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.